0: So, good morning. My name's Philip, in case I hadn't already said it before, and we are continuing with Ask London. Carly's already introduced it perfectly, so without any further ado, let's roll the video and we'll see what injection we are engaging with today.
1: What happens when you die? I can kind of accept that God might... Judge, but there's a difference to having a, an opinion on something that you've done, and you know, threatening you with eternal damnation and fiery pokers. How, um, how the Christian Church um, tackles death and how, how does it stare it in the face, and, and does it does it do it enough? Why is it that God does not believe that if you are not Christian? you are not going to heaven. Even if you live your life in a wonderful way underpinned by fantastic values that are very similar to those um, adopted by the Christian faith. It's different to think... you're just going to be judged to just thinking something's actually going to happen to me Mm. something bad is going to happen to me because of what i'm doing and somebody else some sort of omnipotent being is going to do that to me Mm. (laughs) if i don't toe the line
0: if i live the best life i can and don't relinquish
1: myself to to god or to christ then
0: i will suffer in an afterlife
1: so any kind of religious connotation to fear, like, if you do that, uh ah, terrible things are going to happen to you, I don't, that's not my God. I just think if, if you're having to use fear to get someone to believe
0: something, it
1: doesn't work.
0: Believe in God or else, or believe in Jesus or else, the threat, that's not a God of love. That's just unpleasant. However, if I led a really
1: horrible life and mistreated people but relinquished myself to Christ on my deathbed, that I may get access to heaven and that I really, really struggle with.
0: Man, it doesn't get any easier, does it, this? (laughs) We're just uh, knocking out some really, really tough questions. These are hard, aren't they? Hard questions and crucial ones for us to engage with as a church. The reality is that Jesus talked an awful lot about heaven and about hell and about eternity and about judgment. And so it's quite right that these people so, I think, so graciously and bravely provoke us to do the same thing and to consider what it was he meant by those things. And uh, if you're here this morning particularly to engage with this whole question, then thank you for coming, and we're really, really glad that you're here to do so. I think that's the kind of catchphrase that we sort of picked out uh, from those various different videos. But I think what the, the people in the video are essentially kind of getting at if we just try and really dig beneath what they're getting at, I think, is this? It's an objection that's saying, isn't Christianity's belief in a, a heaven for some and a hell for others, isn't that either like just not being realistic about death, or is it actually deeply threatening? Or and is it just incredibly unfair? Do you sense those things coming through from those various uh, statements and questions and points and so forth? So we're going to get into this, and we're going to do so in four steps. And step one is this: is to ask why is it that we're offended so much by judgment? Let's look at the offence of the idea of a God that judges. And you know, I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, there's lots. I think mean, there's a couple of reasons as to why perhaps we find this in our culture particularly hard. I think one of the facts is like a historical aspect to it. Over the years, over the centuries, the institutional church and and Christians have sometimes used, bluntly speaking, the Bible's teachings on heaven and hell as a means to scare people, or to scare people into faith, or to manipulate behavior. That has certainly happened over the centuries. And so if you're here this morning and you, as it were, have been like beaten with the hell stick by overzealous or judgmental Christians, then I, would co- I completely understand why you would object, therefore, to the idea of a God who judges. I get that. I really do. If that's you, please know that, that whilst Jesus did talk about this stuff a lot and sometimes quite starkly, he never, ever did so to scare someone into some superficial expression of faith And neither did he do so to try and manipulate or control behavior. The second reason I think that we object to the idea of a God who judges or or one who holds us to account perhaps, I think also came through in the video, not least by two guys who talked about the struggle that they have with the the idea that on the one hand, someone who's lived an awful life, but believes in the claims of Christ at the end of their life can go to heaven, And yet, on the other hand, someone that's lived an amazing life, but doesn't believe in the claims of Christ, doesn't go to heaven. Did you hear that struggle come through in the video? And I think, certainly I, and I'm sure many of us as Christians have enormous sympathy with that view, with that objection, with that feeling, because it's equally personal in some ways to, to all of us. We all know people, I'm thinking of just friends and family and colleagues, and I'm sure you're thinking of them as well, people who lead wonderfully kind and generous and fruitful and productive lives, or people that we know that aren't Christians that make a great difference to their community. People that we know that are, that are bright and stimulating and creative and great to be around. You know, loved ones <laughs> who are, by definition, loved and dear to us. And when you are confronted with the thought of them not being in heaven, that is hard. That is deeply hard. Or the idea of them being in hell forever. That is hard. That's about as raw as it gets sometimes. And I'll be upfront with you. That's The Bible does teach pretty clearly, Jesus taught pretty clearly, the church has understood for the last 2,000 years that the only way to eternity with God in heaven is not through living a good life, but it's through believing in Christ. And that the alternative to that, the only other alternative to that is separation from God forever, hell. And that is hard. (laughs) Because like, it just seems to strike. When I mean, you're thinking about those that you know and love and admire and respect, it just seems to strike at the very core of what we feel to be fair or good or just. There, there are, for me, just, there are a number of things that Jesus taught, which often I kind of would rather he hadn't, if I'm honest. And this is probably at the top of the list for me, and I'm sure many of you. If... I'm sure some of you won't like this, but if there was a, a doctrine of Christianity that I could change, this would, be, this would be the one. I don't like thinking about it, I don't like talking about it, I don't like preaching about it, I don't like weeding in my office in the week preparing for it. It's just, it just doesn't chime at all. This whole thing is heart. And I think many of us would have great sympathy with those of us secular or sceptical or seeking or believing who find it hard. Judgment, the idea of a God that judges. Second step, I want to ask, however threatening or difficult or unpalatable or struggling with the idea of judgment, is, I want to ask, isn't it the case that we do perhaps need a God who judges? It might seem like a bit of a gear shift, but let me just ask a second question. Is it not the case that we do need a God who judges? Let me explain what I mean. In our uh, Western modern culture, whatever term you want to put on it, we hold very strongly, don't we, to individualism. It's a very strong value in our culture. By that I mean that the individual's freedom is now a supreme value, a supreme right for many of us. And of course individual freedom in many ways is a wonderful thing. Not least if it talks about the inherent worth, and dignity, and value that is in human beings, individually, for example. But individualism individualism also means that we now see moral truth as being relative to an individual's consciousness. That's the idea that as an individual, whatever feels right for you is therefore true. That I think is quite strong, it's a strong value in our culture now. And so in our culture we have no problem really with the idea of a God who supports us no matter how we live, but we do have a huge problem with the idea of a God who judges and maybe even punishes us for sincerely held beliefs. But I do think we need to maybe recognise what philosophers call the cultural location that does form some of these views. Let me give you an example. There are many tra- traditional societies around the world for whom the Christian doctrine of forgiveness or turning the other cheek would not be sorry, would be very offensive. There'd be a big objection to the idea of grace and forgiveness and turning the other cheek in many traditional cultures because they're very concerned with issues of corporate honour and shame and issues of justice, maybe even vengeance. And so many people around the world, the idea of a God that forgives is actually very, very unpalatable, not the idea of a God who judges. It's actually mainly Western people who are offended by the idea of a judging God. Miroslav Wolf is a uh, guy from a different culture. He's European, but he's a Croatian philosopher. And he witnessed, tragically, many of the atrocities that were committed in the, um, the 1990s war in the former Yugoslavia. And he says some very interesting things. He says that only, it's only really Western people who are offended by the idea of a God who judges. Many people are not actually offended by that as much. In fact, they need a God who judges. This is what he says. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, but imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burnt and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them? We shouldn't retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a western suburb for the birth of the thesis that that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea would invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. And I think Miroslav Volf is getting at a couple of very, very interesting things. And one is this. He's saying, when you've actually witnessed really awful evil and injustice, which most Western people just haven't. And I, I'm not belittling some of the things that some of us have been through or experienced, but the fact is most Western people just haven't even touched the sides of the kind of evil and justice that he's talking about, that he's witnessed, and many of the people around the world have witnessed. And he's saying, when you have witnessed that and experienced that, you're crying out for a God who judges. So in our contemporary society, if you're living in Aleppo at the moment, or Mosul, or North Korea, you're not asking, how can a loving God judge people? You're asking, how can a loving God not judge people? And the second point that Miroslav Volf is making I think is equally interesting, because he's saying that far from a belief in God causing people to be oppressive and violent, which is quite a typical Western objection, that if you believe in a, a God who judges, you yourself will be judgmental or oppressive. is saying that's not the case. Actually, belief in a God who judges justly is the only thing that can prevent someone from turning to violence when they've been that badly harmed. Do you see that? The only thing that can stop someone who has seen their village destroyed or their sister raped is not a Westerner like me saying, now violence won't solve anything, don't retaliate. The only thing they can cling on to is if they can say there is a judge and it's not me. What the Christian, everyone has ultimate reality, don't they, everyone has a view of ultimate reality. And the Christian worldview of ultimate reality is this, that there is a creator God who loves his creative being so much. That's like the bottom line for the Christian worldview. And that as an expression of that deep love, that God experiences deep anger when that which he loves is hurt and damaged. Which should give us a clue as to why we experience and feel the same, I think. And thirdly, the Christian worldview says whilst we should absolutely reflect him by, for example, seeking to reduce oppression and injustice in our day, the reality is, for Christians, that ultimately one day God will return. God will come and bring all people and all events to account and ensure that justice is done. And therefore, we can begin to work with Jesus' instruction to not be the ones that judge, and actually to love our enemies. That's one description, if you like, of the Christian worldview. Now, if you want to say that ultimate reality is something else, and many people would say, ultimate reality really is, is time, space, energy, matter. That's the bottom line. That's where everything started. I think if you want to say that, you have to accept that as much as we can absolutely do wonderful work in, in human rights and social justice and so on, you have to accept there will literally be millions of acts of evil and horror and injustice and violence that will never, ever be dealt with. And what's more, you have to accept, I think, there's little reason not to pick up the sword in vengeance or violence when those things do come. So, you might say, fine, if there's a God and he exists, maybe the idea of him judging the really bad people that you've been talking about is maybe palatable. Maybe I need that. But that, I think, takes us on to step three, which means we have still got a problem. Let me explain it like this, the problem. I was uh, a while ago, I was driving in, in Kingston, it was in the evening, and uh, I was driving along, and suddenly a cyclist kind of just appeared in front of me, just shot out. And I, real, I sort of had to brake and almost hit him and almost hit somebody else. And I realized the cyclist didn't have any lights, which is partly why I didn't see him. I also realized that he was not wearing a helmet. And I also realized he actually had a great big pair of headphones on as well. And I was like, man, what, is, what are you doing? You're joking. You just almost caused an accident. You're putting people's lives at risk. I was like, where's the police car? The one time you need a police car to be here to catch this guy because he's putting other people at risk. The sense of injustice that I felt. Did you get that? Anyway, a few weeks later, I was at home. I was running a bit late for a meeting, didn't have the car. I thought, I need to get on my bike pretty quickly. I'm running late, I'm going to be late. Couldn't find my bike, cycling helmet. My wife always tells me, you must take your helmet. Couldn't find it, running late, she wasn't there, no worries, go. (laughs) Anyway, cycling along with no helmet, suddenly, my phone rings in my pocket, the classic vibrate thing. And in that moment, I thought, cycling along, no helmet, I need to answer this, probably quite important. (laughs) Because I'm quite important. (laughs) I answered my phone, at least I looked at it as I was cycling along. And I suddenly thought, what? Just a few weeks ago, there was me feeling so indignant about the cyclist with no helmet, no lights and the headphones, and here's me a few weeks later, and something in my mind, I'm not just the only one, we find a reason to justify things in ourselves that we wouldn't excuse other people. Or to put it a different way, we want justice for everybody else, and we want mercy for ourselves. You see, I think, to put it a different way, we tend to think of the whole issue of God's judgment a little bit like a bookshelf. I I love books, and I'd love to have a library like this one day with these amazing old books. At the moment, it's just rugby books, but I'm sure I'll get there. (laughs) And uh, I think people think about the whole bookshelf thing as to, as to how we uh, think about God as a, as a judging God. What I mean is this. Let's say you've got a bookshelf like this, six, ro- six uh, rows of books, and we kind of think of it like this, that on the top shelf you've got books about all the kindest and most influential people in history. So on the top shelf you've got Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King. Myself, obviously. (laughs) On the second shelf, you've got kind of national treasures. People that are just known to a nation for a time. People we really value. On the third shelf, you've got books about what you might call ordinary, honest, decent people. Kind of people that you'd give your keys to if you went around on holiday. On the fourth shelf, you've got people who sort of live on the edge, live risky lives, maybe, they're quite fun to be with, but a bit irresponsible, wouldn't lend them your car keys, probably a bit creative with the taxes. On the fifth shelf, you've got people who just kind of lie and cheat quite a lot. And on the sixth shelf, the bottom shelf, you've got people who we consider to be genuinely evil, people who enjoy inflicting harm on others, like dentists. And if you were to draw a line at some point as to who should, who should go to heaven and who shouldn't, my suggestion is that most of us will place ourselves on one of those shelves and we'll probably draw a line where? Just under the shelf that we sit on. Is that reasonable? Now I think the problem that gives us is I'm not sure it gets rid of all the evil and injustice in the world might get rid of shelf six, maybe shelf five, but I'm not sure it gets rid of all the evil and injustice in the world. If we had just the top three shelves, maybe, ordinary, honest, decent people and above, if you like, would that really alleviate the world of greed? Or of selfishness? Or of the human tendency to manipulate others, to make themselves feel better? Remember Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi are on the top shelf, and yet history tells us they were far from perfect men. If you read about their family life, it wasn't short of a disaster. Both caused real distress to their family, and yet they're on the top shelf. The Russian novelist and human rights campaigner, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he considered the hypothetical possibility of ridding the world of evil and injustice. You may have thought the same thing. Is there a way we can just get rid of it all? And he concluded this, having given it a lot of thought, and written a lot of books, and been to a gulag in Russia, and so on and so forth. He said, Oh, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But, and this is perhaps the phrase he's most famous for, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? There is, if we're honest, in those quiet reflective moments, there is in all of us darkness in our hearts a little space, maybe small, maybe big, there's darkness in all of our hearts, where if we're honest, if someone shone a light onto the worst of things, maybe even the kind of the the withered hand analogy that Becker was bringing um, prophetically during worship, that worst thing that he wouldn't dare to expose. We've all got a stain on our hearts, I think. None of us, the Bible says very clear, none of us can merit heaven by our good deeds wonderful though human good deeds can often be. Because, let's be honest with each other, what kind of God would draw a line on the bookshelf at shelf two or or shelf three and say, well, violence and and robbery and all of that, we're not going to have any of that, but yeah, we can kind of put up with a bit of greed, a bit of selfishness, a bit of pride. What kind of God would do that? A God worthy of worship? A God worthy of trusting? I'll just go back to the story of the cyclists. And I said, we want justice for everybody else, and we want mercy for ourselves. And the problem is it's very hard, it seems to me, to have mercy and justice. Very hard to have them both. Let's say I caused an accident when I was cycling along with no helmet and checking my phone. Let's say there was a, um, a, a parent crossing the road with a buggy, and I just ploughed straight into the buggy and hurt their little child really quite badly and I found myself in court. Now, in that moment, I would, I'm pretty sure I would love some mercy. I'd love the judge to say, I've looked at your record, you're pretty clean, apart from a few dubious events at university, but we'll gloss over that. I'm a, I'm a forgiving kind of guy as a judge. You can go free, have mercy. Ooh, I'd like that. But then change the camera to the, the parents outside, what would they be saying? What? What? Where's the justice? Where's the justice for our child? This guy was just selfishly, arrogantly going along, and he's hurt our child, and you're you're letting him walk away scot-free? Very hard to have justice and mercy. Mercy and justice. In fact, I would say exercising mercy nearly always happens at the expense of justice. Do you hear that? Exercising mercy nearly always has to happen at the expense of justice. You see, if God exercises mercy and we all enter heaven, or all of us bar the really, 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 really bad people, then he will have to decide not to uphold justice for all of the moral failings of those he allows in, including you and I. If God upholds true justice as surely a holy, perfect, true God absolutely would and must, then no one enters heaven because none of us can claim anything approaching true goodness, true perfection. That's the state of affairs I think we're left with. And this dark stain all of us will have from time to time in our hearts is testament to that. If we return to the bookshelf for a moment, God doesn't draw uh, the line horizontally across the bookshelf. That's not really how he works. God draws the line down the middle of the bookshelf. He is not interested in which shelf we're on, how bad our deeds have been, or how good they may appear to be. He doesn't select a third or a fourth, he draws a line right down the middle. He says, I'm here for everyone. I'm here for shelf one to six and worse. And nothing you can do is so low that I I can't reach you, and nothing you can do is so high that you can reach me on your own. And he says, the perfection that you need to exist with me for eternity can only be found in my son, and I give him to you. His perfection is your perfection. That is how God views us. He draws a line down the middle, and anyone, as much as it offends us, from shelf one to six, has the perfection of Christ, and that's what brings us into heaven, not where our good deeds take us. And therefore I'm hinting at step four for this morning, which is the solution. Because in Christianity, mercy and justice do come together in a way that wouldn't have worked in my court case scenario. In fact, remarkably, God exercises his mercy through his justice because Jesus Christ is the only one without any stain on his heart, not even the smallest one. And he's the one, God of the Son, who voluntarily submits to God's just anger and punishment for human darkness, our darkness. If you like, our bit of hell that we all experience and contribute to and stains our hearts. Jesus takes the punishment and the anger for all of that. And then we say, anger? Anger isn't God a God of peace, God of love? How does anger work out? Is God really angry enough to punish every sin? Like lying, pride, manipulation, selfishness, violence? Well I think maybe why we find that hard is because we see anger and love as like diametrically opposed things, opposites. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. The writer Becky Pippert she puts it like this, I think very helpfully. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Do you respond with benign tolerance as you might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his subtle opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. What she means is that God's anger flows from his love and delight towards his creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying the peace and the integrity and the harmony of his creation and his created beings. And so at the cross, in a remarkable way, justice is done. God himself takes the justice that he needs, that we need upon Him. So, I know some of you know this so well. And yet it is the bottom line. The justice that we need is done at the cross. Every single act, every single act of human darkness, of human hell, for want of a better phrase, that's ever perpetrated, that ever will be perpetrated, God's anger that he feels out of love, is placed upon Jesus, not just placed upon Jesus, it devastates Jesus. And Jesus did that willingly and knowingly. And he knew what he was going to. I I can't get my head much around the physical violence that he knew was coming up, because he knew what crucifixion was gonna be like. And we think that's what caused him to almost collapse physically in the garden the night before he died. I don't think it was. He was facing up, To receiving all of God's righteous, perfect anger for every single act of human darkness and hell ever done. That's what meant he collapsed to his knees. That's what meant he cried out to God for any other way. That's what meant that the the stress and the adrenaline he was feeling caused the capillaries to birth. He started sweating blood. Because he knew what was coming. Justice is done. And at the same time, God extends the hand of mercy. God extends mercy through his justice. It's that mercy that we all want for ourselves and the justice that we want for everybody else takes place at the cross. The mercy that we all want for ourselves and the justice that we want for everyone else but know that we deserve as well. It happens in one extraordinary hybrid at the cross. And then God says, choose. God says, choose. See, God created us with the dignity of choice. Why? Because any meaningful love relationship with him and with each other requires choice, doesn't it? So God gave us the choice to choose him. And at the cross, God says, choose. He says, says, I I didn't wait for you to to merit my love or to merit eternal love, to try and work your way up the shelves. What does Romans five say? wonderful few verses. Romans 5 tells us Christ died for us whilst we were still sinners. And even pushes it a bit further and tells us whilst we were effectively enemies of his, setting ourselves up against him, that's when he died, not before we'd worked our way up some shelves. God says that's how much I love you. That's how seriously I take human darkness and the effect it has on my beloved creation, and it's how much I love my beloved creation, that I would combine mercy and justice in one beautiful, savage thing. And I call you to choose. Choose me, God says. Turn to a God of infinite love and beauty, one who extends mercy whilst also accomplishing justice. Or don't choose me. God gives us the dignity of making the choice not to choose him. And if we don't choose him, he says, fine. I grant you that choice and the consequences of that choice both now and forever. You see, here's the, I guess here's the thing, This is the bottom line, if you only hear this this morning, hear this. Jesus Christ did not come to find good people. He didn't come inspecting the bookshelf of life, selecting one, two, and three, maybe four in a good day to all people shelf one to six and beneath that he came to anyone who would accept that whatever shelf they were on one, two, three, four, five and six they need a heart that's cleaned not stained anyone who would accept they need a new start anyone who would accept I need a, a love that's perfect a meaning that's watertight Jesus came not to find good people but to extend the hand of love and mercy and justice to all people And he gave us the dignity of choice. And he said, do you you want me? That's the, almost the, you could put a speech bubble at the top of the cross with Jesus there. God saying to humanity, do you want me? This is the mercy and the justice combined that you need. Do you want me? Do you want true freedom within a love relationship with the God of the universe? Or do you want freedom from me? It's the choice that God gives us. That's what hell is. Hell is the eternal consequence of a decision made to choose freedom from God. Is God giving people what they want. Freedom from him. C.S. Lewis put it like this. C.S. Lewis said there are two kinds of people. People that say to God, thy will be done. And people that God says to, thy will be done. And that's why hell is real. That's why it can begin to make make some kind of sense even though it leaves us with many, many, many questions about it. It's also why it's horrific. Because people are being separated from the source of love and meaning. There is an infinite source of love pulsing towards humanity. And if someone says, no, I don't want that, I want my version of freedom, then they are separating themselves from that forever. And love will exist somewhere where they are not. And horror remains. And degradation continues and continues and continues. And it's awful. And I hate talking about it and I hate preaching about it and I hate reading about it and I wish it wasn't there sometimes. But I do know that I want a God who is merciful and I want a God who is just. I want a God who is worthy of worship. I want a God who doesn't have a a relative view of truth or morality or sin. If that's what hell is, then heaven is this. Heaven is the eternal consequence, the eternal consequence of someone who says, I know that however good a life I lead, there will always be a stain on my heart that a pure and perfect holy God worthy of the name simply cannot turn a blind eye to. Heaven is the eternal consequence of someone who said, I recognize that my shelf free evil does need justice, however much I want mercy. Heaven is the eternal consequence of someone who said, I choose to accept the two hands of mercy and justice that Christ extends to me. Heaven is the eternal consequence of someone who recognizes that it is faith in Christ's accomplishments that makes us one with him now and forever. And his accomplishments are ours. His perfection, his righteousness becomes ours. Heaven is the eternal consequence of someone who recognizes that the resurrection of Christ means that he's alive and well and ascended and therefore we can be confident of his actual return and a day where he will judge everyone a day when he will make every wrong right everyone where he'll undo all evil somehow where he'll wipe away every single tear a day when he will fully renew and restore this very earth with the perfection of heaven band, could you come and join me and help us to respond and reflect? It's got good time to do so. It's the first Sunday of the month and we always share communion together on that, on that Sunday. Not least because we have time to give it the reverence that it, um, that it deserves. And I mentioned before that uh, Jesus prayed the night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane and of course, if you're a Christian, you'll know that just a few hours before that, that same evening, he encouraged his followers to share bread and wine as a way of remembering Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And so we take this really seriously, this ritual, because it's what Jesus told us to do. It helps us to remember what he did. It helps us to remember what was required for justice to take place. Help us remember what was required for us to clasp hold the hand of mercy. And so if you're here this morning, as I know many of us are, as followers of Christ, then it's a wonderful thing to come and share this meal, this ritual together. We'll do so in these next few moments. The guys to my right and my left, you have bread and wine. And the team at the back, you have gluten-free bread and fruit juice, if that's your preference. I've known a few stories over the years not personally but I've read about stories of people who for this has been the moment for them when they decided to become a follower of Christ taking communion for the first time is, can be the best way of saying do you know what I have loads of questions God but I recognise that this meal symbolises ultimate reality a God who created me a God who loved me a God who bestows upon me genuine choice so I can enter into that love relationship with Him. A God who won't turn a blind eye to the stain on my heart and the stain that I've caused. And who through the suffering and death of His Christ and His Son, broken body, shed blood, extends the hand of justice and mercy to me. He says, I'm sorry for the stain that's here and the stain that I've caused and you take that meal for the first time and you begin your journey of following Christ which will last you forever and of course if, you, if you're not at that stage yet you're here with us exploring asking questions as a visitor perhaps that's fine not to be at that stage yet we're really glad that you're here with us exploring this stuff I would say for you why not use this time as Jamie and the band leaders why not use this time to sit, to stand, to reflect, to examine the song, to think about what you've heard, and ask yourself, why are these people, and why are millions of Christians around the world taking this meal today and this week? Why are these people, who've got loads of questions about suffering and hell and creation and all of these things, why are they so convinced about the centrality of the gospel, the perfect life? substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection of Christ that they're taking this meal. Use this time to respond. The prayer team are already here and you can get prayer from them as you're going down if that's helpful. Becca will keep leading us. If you sense God is speaking and communicating with us, there's time for you to come and share that and we'll continue to worship God and reflect on him together. Do you stand?